next met with Dr. Myron Chuchman to discuss more about CLL and NHL, and he began by commenting on a German study evaluating bendamustine with rituximab as first-line therapy in CLL. The abstract by Fisher was looking at the combination of betamustine with rituximab as first-line therapy in advanced CLL. It was a multi-center phase two trial, the German CLL study group. And it's interesting because from a year before, betamustine rituxin was actually presented at ASH 2008 in relapsed CLL. And actually, it was quite promising, showed a response rate of over 75% in about 80 patients that were treated. So this year, the data was presented in upfront patients. Over uh, 117 patients were treated with betamustine plus rituximab. And as noted in this abstract, a 90% response rate with about 33%, a third of the patients achieving complete remissions. And these appear to be durable. So after a median of 18 months, three-quarters of these patients remain in remission. I think a couple interesting points is betamustine had a lot of interesting presentations this year at ASH, including not only in CLL, but also in follicular lymphoma. And as we know, just to review, betamustine is an alkylator combined with a purine analog in its chemical structure, but it's believed to be a superalkylator with respect to function. And I think what this shows basically demonstrates that we can achieve very high overall response rates as well as CRs in patients. And of interest, the worst prognostic group we've noticed in recent years is being the 17P minus or deleted patient population. And they were able to demonstrate three out of seven patients, 43% of these patients responded with partial remissions. You talked about it as a super alkylator, but isn't it also kind of similar to fludarabine? You know, that's an interesting question. And what I can say is that from the research that I have reviewed and the research that's been done, basic research, even though it has part of its structure resembles, for example, chlorodeoxyadenosine, it is not believed that it contributes to its anti-tumor activity, that it's primarily a superalkylating agent. And what ends up a mitotic catastrophe, it's been characterized. And it's true, actually, in patients who had prior, one of these other abstracts we'll be going over, patients who've actually been refractory to prior either alkylator or purine analogs or the combination still seem to be responsive to metamustine. Now, this is a phase two study. What kind of phase three studies are ongoing right now trying to look at this? Right now, the different studies are in the planning stages, and the issue that comes up is that we have betamustine retux, and I think that the trial that would be the most interesting and what's planned is looking at its comparison to FCR, which is, as we know, was spearheaded from MD Anderson Cancer Center, but also we'll be discussing there was a German trial looking at it as well in a large number of patients. So I think that might be the most interesting comparison is what are the pluses and minuses between, say, betamustine rituxin versus fludarabine cytoxin and rituxin. Anyway, to sort of indirectly make some kind of estimate in terms of efficacy and side effects of those two regimens? I think actually it would be very difficult. I think that what we've seen over the years is that looking at phase two trials, it's very difficult to extrapolate to a phase three results type of comparison without a phase three trial because this way you can control for the fine-tuning with respect to patient characteristics, different prognostic and risk factors, and then be able to look at it more scientifically. I would say to you is that FCR has excellent activity 
And we'll be discussing in a few minutes the ofatumumab, fludarabine, cytoxin. The same question will come up. How does one compare phase two results? Are they better? Are they worse? And I think what I've appreciated is that we really do have to wait for the phase three results and those trials to be done in order to really make a comment on that. So does that also apply to side effects and toxicity or do you think – because, I mean, FCR is not necessarily the easiest regimen to utilize or do you think you can say that this regimen would generally be easier? I think that the issue there with respect to toxicity is a lot of times it depends on, again, the patient's comorbidities, the degree of involvement, what did the patient start with with respect to their blood counts. And also I can say it's dose-dependent because first when betamustine was used at much higher doses, either 100 milligrams per meter squared or higher, and it was given every three weeks versus every four weeks, we saw a lot more toxicity and it was more difficult to administer in a timely fashion or at the doses proposed. It's going to be a learning tool for not only people in academics but also in practice, in private practice, is that we have to get a feel for the drug and doses are still effective even below what is the FDA-recommended dose. And I think that what we've seen here also is that dose adjustments, as long as it's active, actually is acceptable. And the real question is, do you maintain the intensity of the trial or is it better to get six cycles in over a set schedule versus trying to get higher doses which are not going to be able to be achieved? I would say to you is that right now the toxicity actually got better when the doses went down from a higher doses down to, for example, 90 milligrams per meter squared. But heavily pretreated patients probably going to need further dose adjustment even from that. What do you think is a reasonable use of this regimen outside a protocol setting right now? For example, are there patients that you think it would be reasonable to bring this up as an option, first-line therapy outside of protocol? You know, actually, betamustine has been, you know, approved for treatment of upfront CLL. However, in America, that was based on a trial of betamustine single agent being tested against chlorambucil. And again, clarambucil as a single agent is not the standard of care here in the United States. I would say to you that a number of physicians would consider using betamustine rituxin in the upfront setting. It's hard to say. I would say to you patients who I'm worried about, the FCR regimen has been around longer. It has demonstrated its side effects are significant. However, in younger patients, it appears, at least in my experience, to be better tolerated. I would say that in an older patient population where we feel that FCR may be difficult for that individual due to comorbidities, age, starting blood counts, that I have actually utilized betamustine toxin successfully with very good results. Now, I would not recommend necessarily that every patient get started on betamustine toxin. I tend to use it more in a second, third line or later in patients, but I have to tell you that the initial experience in patients who have been very refractory and resistant to prior treatments, including high-dose therapy with ARC-containing regimens, I've been very impressed that this regimen, betamustine rituxin, has the ability to salvage patients with very resistant refractory disease. So you mentioned ofatumumab, and I'm curious about your take on Abstract 207 by Weirda et al., looking at ofatumumab and CLL. Yes, this was a trial with a primary endpoint was the CR rate, ofatumumab with fludarabine cytoxin. In other words, a variant will say, you know, FCR, this was FCO. We should just remind people that ofatumumab is a human anti-CD20 antibody. It recognizes a slightly different target on the CD20 protein that is, there's a small loop and a large loop. It's recognizing more of the small loop and part of the large loop, which is different than rituximab. There was a trial that was done with eight infusions of ofatumumab alone. 
That pivotal trial with those antifugins led to its approval in patients with refractory CLL. Just to remind people that the ofatumumab alone with eight infusions had a 58% response rate in patients who were refractory with fludarabine and elemtuzumab, also known as Campath, and about a 50% response rate in patients with bulky fludarabine refractory CLL, meaning bulky 5-centimeter greater size nodes that would not be really amenable to treatment with elemtuzumab. Median progression-free survival was six months, with overall survival being in the 14 to 15-month range. So now this is a movement of ofatumumab in the upfront setting with ludarabine and cytoxin. 60 patients were treated. And it should be noted that about about three-quarters of patients responded and had about a 40% CR rate. There were two different dose levels. They were patients randomized either to 500 milligrams of ofatumumab or 1,000 milligrams of ofatumumab. And there appeared to be maybe a slightly higher complete remission rate in the higher dose of ofatumumab. It's interesting, you mentioned about FCR. Only about 60% overall average patients completed all six courses of the OFC combination. And adverse events, infections were seen in about 11 out of the 60 patients. And neutropenia was actually the most common side effect. About half the patients had some degree of neutropenia. And I guess it just should be noted that there was a question and answer after this was presented, and it was asked what you basically asked me before. What does this compare to FCR? I think it's somewhat difficult to make a direct comparison. However, you can say that at least it's promising, and whether or not it's better is going to have to wait for actually a direct phase three comparative trial to fully answer that question. You were talking about, you know, where it binds the epitope compared to rituximab, the fact that it's closer to the cell membrane. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about intuitively about why maybe that would lead to better response? And also, would you expect that with CLL as opposed to lymphoma? You know, rituximab doesn't seem to be as effective. I guess there's not as much CD20 with CLL. What about bringing ofatumumab in from that point of view? Yeah, very good questions. I do a fair amount of translational research, and I'm interested in these type of questions and a better understanding, I think, we need to why these things may work and what are the mechanisms. There is just some recent theory. I don't believe necessarily that it has been proven without a doubt, but some ideas that are being kicked around include what you just said with ofatumumab being binding to the small loop, it's closer to the cell membrane. And perhaps in particular, it appears to be more effective inducing complement-dependent cytotoxicity where you activate the complement system by having antibody bind to the surface of the tumor cell, the CLL cell or lymphoma cell, puts up a red flag to the complement system to attack the cancer cell. In particular, it appears that it takes less in the way of CD20, we'll say antigen density or number of molecules per cell to induce complement-dependent cytotoxicity with ofatumumab as compared to rituximab. CLL may be a B-cell neoplasm more amenable to this. As you mentioned, it has a more variable expression, including both low, medium, and high expression of CD20, whereas typically follicular and large cell lymphomas are more CD20 bright and less heterogeneous. Therefore, it is interesting, but perhaps a tumor such as CLL, maybe that's why the single agent actually had more activity, for example, in CLL as compared to uh, single agent in, say, follicular lymphoma, rituxin refractory follicular lymphoma. And where do you see, again, ovatumumab fitting in today in terms of non-protocol management of CLL? I think that in patients that have refractory CLL, 
that have already been, most of these patients, if not all, will be exposed to prior rituximab plus chemo, fludarabine, probably base-type regimen, that once become resistant, that ofatumab definitely has activity with respect to acting in these patients that one should consider using ofatumab in the salvage setting, at least at this time. We have this thing, we try to tease out how people think about therapies by saying, suppose someone came to you for a second opinion, and the first opinion was to use an ofatumumab combination up front in CLL. Would you turn around and, I mean, maybe that wouldn't be, it sounds like that wouldn't be your recommendation, but what would you say about that type of initial recommendation? Would you say, I really think this is not a good idea, you should not do it? Would you say, well, you know, that's a reasonable option, but it's not the one I prefer? I mean, how would you sort of characterize that kind of approach? I would say to you that if a patient came to me that I don't think enough data is known right now. I think that what we've shown from the presentation in these patients that were presented at ASH was that you have activity, the safety profile at least appears to be, you know, similar to what would be expected maybe from FCR. FCR data is quite good. The issue is that when you add an antibody to combination therapy, the chemo, for example, with fludarabine and cytoxan, the single agent activity may not be as critical. Then you're dealing with synergy. If a patient asked me, I would probably say FCR is easier to give because it's been given around the country. To try to obtain ofatumumab as an upfront treatment, it's not yet FDA approved. It's only in the refractory setting. I personally would not be recommending it at this time until we get more data. I think that in the future, we may be able to clarify it better that there may be subsets of patients that may benefit definitely from an ovatumab FC combination versus an FCR combination. But until that data is known, I would not recommend that in clinical practice. So we've been talking about FCR and Halleck et al. presented an interesting paper, 535, a German study looking at survival in patients receiving FCR? Yes, actually, the HALIC is an update from the original CLL-8 German trial, and he basically updated this results. There were over 800, 817 patients. They were randomized between FC versus FCR, and it was noted that the CR rate, basically FCR, anytime you add rituxin to chemo, essentially wins. So FCR had a 52% complete remission rate, and the FC only 27%. So in this, this was a trial of noted and previously untreated patients, and it was an update showing improvement in overall survival. With respect to just going back over their updated, they found with FCR there was actually a 95% overall response rate. And when they updated it this year, they mentioned a 44% CR rate with an improvement in progression-free survival or of FC, 52 months over 33 months. And then overall survival at three years was a difference of 87% with FCR versus only 82%. Still respectable, but statistically different, 82% with FC. And it should be noted that with FCR, there was, again, a 44% CR rate. FC only induced a 22% complete remission rate. It also was mentioned in this abstract that FCR was good in a subset of patients such as 11Q-, the 13Q-, and trisomy 12, but it was still not very effective, as the Germans noted here, that it was not effective in the 17P-, probably the worst subgroup of CL patients that we see, although can be treated, and some results from MD Anderson demonstrate that some patients do benefit with the 17P-. The German data here basically stated it was not very effective. 
So factors that predicted actually treatment failure with FCR from this large German database with 17 P-minus patients, patients who got FC did worse than FCR. And of interest, it still holds true for now many years. Patients with high beta-2 microglobulin levels seem not to do as well as those patients with, say, normal ranges of beta-2 microglobulin. I mean, they reported a hazard rate in terms of survival of 0.66, so 35% reduction in mortality. How often has that been seen in randomized trials in CLL? I think actually it's quite impressive and it's meaningful. This is a very important trial, and I think that it's recognized that it is important with respect to its improvement overall survival. The issues that come up, though, as we kind of discussed a little bit earlier, though, is we have to keep in mind toxicity with respect to an older patient population. You know, can we actually get enough treatment in? And do we have to be concerned somewhat? I mean, heme toxicity does occur. It's more common with FCR than FC. In particular, heme toxicity was seen in over half the patients, 56%. Neutropenia, over a third of the patients, and that was greater than with FC. And that can limit the amount of therapy gotten into patients. And also, toxicities in some patients can be durable or more long-term. It should be noted, though, offsetting this is that complete remission rates, at least in this database, when they looked at CRPRs, PRs, that CRs produce the longest survival. So there's that theme that comes up from time to time, is that getting a patient into a very good, complete remission perhaps at the very beginning of therapy, will decrease those patients' risk of developing significant degrees of drug resistance, CLL, and actually does lead to longer survival. What about the CALGB study looking at FR? Fludarabine and rituxan was presented by Woyak. Actually, it was John Bird's original study looking at fludarabine plus rituxan, either given concurrently or sequentially. And it was on 104 patients previously untreated, a very nice 84% overall response rate. And a long-term follow-up, it was interesting that the concurrent in the sequential, whereas fludarabine was given initially and then four doses of rituxan afterwards, had similar long-term follow-up. The median overall survival being 84 months with a concurrent 91 months of sequential, median progression-free survival being 32 months concurrent, 40 months with sequential, not statistically significantly different. It noted that about almost 20% of patients, the responders, remained in remission at eight years. They did not find any increased risk of secondary cancers or late infections. So basically the conclusion from that long-term follow-up was that F plus R is an acceptable first-line treatment for low-risk CLL patients and it might be interesting to actually compare that FR to FCR and probably, I would say, in the low-risk patients because perhaps it actually gives us similar activity. And when we look at more aggressive or poor-risk patients, perhaps a more aggressive regimen is needed for them. What about paper 1662, another bendamustine paper looking at bendamustine alone or with rituximab in heavily pretreated patients with CLL? That's Rigacci. Basically, simply put, the answer is yes with respect to Rigacci. I mean, they basically looked at the safety and efficacy of betamustine plus or minus rituxan for the treatment of heavily pretreated CLL and lymphoma patients. It was a retrospective study. And I think the general theme is that patients respond to betamustine rituxan, especially even patients who have had prior treatment with respect to multiple agents and multiple different combinations of therapy. And I think that's just the take-home point was that it can be safely given and it does have efficacy. What about paper 2367, looking at bendamustine compared to chlorambucil in elderly patients with CLL? 
Basically, it was done in 45 centers in Europe, and it was almost 320 patients. I mentioned before the dose was a little bit higher. This is a single-agent betamustine, 100 milligrams per meter squared, days one and two. It was, though, given every 28 days, which definitely is more easily tolerated in 21-day schedules. The take-home point was it improved progression-free survival, Overall was well tolerated with respect in this patient population. Dose adjustments do need to be done, have been done, and do need to be done. And even today with our patients, I think that the practicing physician oncologist will find out that even though it's recommended to be given perhaps at 100 milligrams per meter squared day one and two, when we start adding other agents to it, when you add rituxan even to this, there may be some more degree of neutropenia has been seen. So 90 milligrams per meter squared in previously untreated patients given day one and two of a 28-day schedule is actually better tolerated, but even then might need further dose adjustment. It was interesting from this abstract, Neil, that they found that presence of B symptoms, as we know, fevers, night sweats, or significant weight loss, actually had associated with a decreased progression-free survival. And their conclusions was, and I think this is important that we pick actually patients who are going to be better responsive. We need to be able to determine biomarkers eventually of either predicting response or no response, is that it was interesting that betamustine alone in patients that had B symptoms did not have as great of an impact as those patients that did not have B symptoms. There was another paper looking at ofatumumab that was looking at concentrations, serum concentrations, paper 3433 by Osterberg et al. What do you think about that? Bottom line is that they looked at it and they said they gave eight infusions of ofatumumab that doses four and eight if the patient had a higher level of ofatumumab in blood, it appeared that it may give a better response with respect to efficacy, but I think it's too early to say that that's been proven. How about paper number 2679 by Burkhardt et al. looking at peripheral blood stem cell mobilization after Ben Mustine? What this was, Neil, this abstract 2679 was looking at stem cell mobilization after either BR or RCHOP. I look at these agents, I say that, yes, it's possible that patients who get betamustine plus rituximab can have stem cells mobilized. However, I feel that it's almost like, well, if I can mobilize them, if I'm planning to mobilize them and I can mobilize them, it's not that scientific that we've taken a group of patients, a large number of patients, and actually looked at how well we mobilize all of them. It seems like this is at least a hint that in a small subset of patients from the large study that was done in Germany comparing RCHOP to betamustine rituxan upfront therapy, that that is a concern that betamustine may be more myelosuppressive and it may be difficult to collect stem cells after patients being treated with it. At least in this description, in this abstract, I kind of look at it as, yes, it's possible to be done, but if we look at a large number of patients, what is the actual percentage of patients that may not have the ability to be successfully collected? I think I'll just mention it so just its first review is that it doesn't appear to have a major hit on stem cells, but not forgetting that we don't know what the actual characteristics of these patients were. And for example, patients that say were previously treated and a relapse, maybe that will have less success with collecting stem cells. I think we really need more data before we can actually use that as a take-home point, that there is no significant impact of betamustine rituxan with respect to stem cell collections at this point. And I guess we should point out that this was done in patients with indolent lymphoma. Yes. What about the paper blocking of betamustine and, again, indolent lymphoma? Bruce Chesson actually presented this data as a pooled analysis 
basically looking at beta-mustine leading to durable responses in patients with rituxan refractory lymphoma. Uh, 176 patients. I mentioned to you before the dose of betamustine as a single agent was 120 milligrams per meter squared given day one to every 21 days for six cycles. And, you know, it should just be noted that almost half the patients could not complete six cycles, even they given six or more cycles. So, uh, about 53% of patients did complete six or more cycles. However, dose reductions were necessary. I did contribute patients or we participated in clinical trials looking at patients with a rituxan-resistant lymphoma and found that patients did respond. There was a very impressive 76% overall response rate, including about a quarter of the patients had a CR. And in that bad patient population of rituxan-resistant lymphoma, there was that high response rate and duration of response about 10 months, as was about the median progression-free survival. So it does work. It does salvage patients that have rituxan-resistant lymphoma, but it does have toxicity associated with it. Maybe we can do better with bringing down the dose and giving more cycles. In the future, these questions have to be answered. And also, I should also mention to you that they took a look at patients with previously alkylator-resistant or purine analog-resistant disease, and they still had a very high response rate with betamustine as a single agent. How do you approach the use of betamustine outside of protocol in terms of dose and schedule? When you have patients, and this happens to us, we don't have a clinical trial for every patient. So when I see patients with either low-grade lymphoma, CLL, and now we're starting to look at Waldenstrom's, if there's not a clinical trial, Steve Treon is starting a trial of betamustine rituxan in patients with Waldenstrom's microglobulinemia anemia at Dana-Farber. I think that it does have a role. I think that I prefer starting my patients at 90 milligrams per meter squared instead of the higher dose and... The question is, does rituxan add anything in a rituxan refractory patient? I mean, the current standard in, I'd say, around the country is that one would add rituxan. Maybe patients are not completely resistant. They may be, say, variable degrees of resistance, and that betamustine rituxan does have what appears to be synergy. So I would start with the 90 milligrams per meter squared day one, two, and give rituxan on day one the usual 375 milligrams per meter squared, and I would not go sooner than a Q28-day schedule. I can tell you that in patients who are heavily pretreated, that may be too much. You kind of feel your way through. You see how the patients, you get weekly blood counts on these patients, and you determine if they can tolerate growth factors, can be utilized, uh, Nulasta. But it's not uncommon for me to heavily pretreated patients. I drop them down to 60 or 50 or 45 milligrams per meter squared with subsequent cycles with still good activity being demonstrated. How about the paper by Baldini et al. looking at upfront therapy untreated indolent non-follicular lymphoma with FCR followed by rituximab maintenance? Basically interesting but surprising. Of course, patients that have non-follicular low-grade lymphoma do respond, we know, for many years to fludarabine either alone or in combination. So just by using FCR, we know that it works, and there's been previous trials and publications. We know for sure it works in CLL, both refractory, recurrent disease, as well as upfront disease from MD Anderson, the German trial. We know that it works in follicular lymphoma. There have been publications on it. So it's not surprising that in low-grade indolent non-follicular lymphomas that it has activity as well. I'll be honest with you, whether or not you know, we have great activity with FCR, I guess the issue is patients, their age, comorbidities, how well do they tolerate it, what is the degree of immunosuppression and myelosuppression, and how long before they recover. Do other treatments compare 
And I was going to say that, you know, people for years have used RCVP, R-chopfludarabine plus R. I don't know if it's a major advance. I think it's interesting, but I don't think that everybody with, for example, they have marginal zone lymphomas, et cetera, everybody should be getting FCR with R maintenance. How about the paper by Sandra Horning et al. looking at RAI, specifically tocitumumab in patients with NHL who progress after getting rituximab? Yeah, tocitumumab is one of the two, also known as Bexar, and we know that ibrutumumab tuxin, also known as Evelyn, were FDA-approved years ago, not used very much, being rediscovered somewhat based on its use in the European trials, the FIT trial with the Zevalin after upfront chemotherapy. It was recently FDA approved, for example, in patients with follicular lymphoma after upfront systemic therapy as a single dose, looked at as maybe consolidation based on the European data from the FIT trial. This is interesting because this was tocitumab bexar. This is a long-term follow-up in 40 patients that had prior rituximab, 59, 60% of these patients had our chemo resistance. The follow-up now is 54 months, four and a half years. And it was interesting because it just shows that some of these patients actually have quite durable responses. The overall initial response rate was 72% with 20% CRs. It's actually quite interesting that 40% of these responders have not progressed at five years and the overall survival in these patients is 80 months. So I think it's re-evaluating or going back and saying that radiotherapy probably has a role with respect to the treatment of patients with follicular lymphoma, or in particular, this is our chemo-resistant to a number of these patients, and it should not be overlooked that in patients that have resistant disease, it's still a viable option. How do you yourself approach the use of RAI with either of these agents, and particularly, are you utilizing it earlier? With respect to the radiotherapy, again, very interesting, but I think there's so many different agents that are being tested now. We have different classes of drugs. We have novel combinations. It's difficult to say where the best time. Personally, I have not been incorporating radiotherapy in the upfront setting or as part of a consolidation. The problem I had with the FIT trial, Neil, was that most of those patients were getting a whole hodgepodge of chemos that were not rituxin plus chemotherapy-based. A lot of these patients only had PRs. And then after getting a dose of, say, radioimmunotherapy, they were able to convert to CRs. And I've had this discussion actually with Anton Hagenbeek, who was the leader of the trial. And I said, well, what if you gave our chemo, like, for example, our CHOP, and then you could show me that you had an advantage with respect to progression-free survival. I'll be the first on the bandwagon to be using it. That trial has not been done, and I'd like to see that type of trial done before I start incorporating it because I think that it can be maybe saved for patients, I don't know how much it adds to a good upfront induction or chemo-based therapy. And also, we have to be considerate that if you do use agents that may increase the potential risk of secondary myeloid malignancies, that giving an exposure of the stem cells to a dose of radiation uh, may not be in the patient's best interest, and we could actually see complications years later. Interesting. I wanted to ask about a few papers that came out in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. It seems like there hasn't been that much to talk about until recently. It seems like there's more stuff going on. One of the things I'm starting to hear about is pralotrexate, and there was a paper by Horowitz et al. looking at that. Yes. Pralotrexate is a new antifolate, basically developed initially, I guess, at Sloan Kettering, 
Owen O'Connor actually was instrumental in its development and approval for a peripheral T-cell lymphoma. Uh, the trial was in 30 patients. and was actually a dose type of finding study. They started higher and they looked at which doses were effective and still able to be tolerated well. And I can just mention too is that the prolotrexate is interesting. It has activity, as we noted, because of its FDA-proven peripheral T-cell lymphoma. And there was a bit of what they described as a threshold dose. They tried different doses and regimens and different weeks. And it found that at doses of 15 milligrams per meter squared IV, given for three weeks out of every four weeks, and that can be repeated, you see actually quite early responses quite quickly. And at this type of dose intensity, overall response rates over 60% of patients. And I should mention also, we can mention now, there was another trial by Pinter Brown, the uh, abstract, the Propel study looking at prelatrexate in patients that had also T-cell lymphomas, over 100 patients, noted a 29% response rate. Now, this was peripheral T-cell, right? Yes, it was peripheral T-cell lymphoma, about 30% response rate, 11% CR, but similar toxicities, and it should be mentioned that with prelatrexate, patients need to get folate supplementation and vitamin B12. And the biggest side effects that they noted in these trials were mucosal inflammation, nausea, thrombocytopenia, and fatigue. And noting that physicians in a community need to be cautious of this, should remember the vitamin B12 and folate administration, and also be considered about dose adjusting or decreasing the dose, especially if you're on B12 and folate and you're still getting mucosal inflammation or mucositis. In terms of this PROPEL trial and looking at pralotrexate in peripheral T-cell, are there plans to bring it up earlier and combine with other chemo regimens or agents? Actually, Neil, there's discussions with respect to that. We said with the PROPEL, the pralotrexate in relapsed refractory patients and PTCL, there's definitely discussion in the different cooperative groups and with the different experts in the field of T-cell lymphoma that the activity may be better in the upfront setting. I think that the only issue that one needs to consider is that the toxicity profile is such that we have to be cautious as to what agents we're going to be adding to prelotrexate in an attempt to improve efficacy without necessarily getting an excessive toxicity profile. Now, also in terms of peripheral T-cell lymphoma, there was a paper, 1657, looking at romadepsin, an HDAC inhibitor. Can you comment on that? Yes, romadepsin, actually, it was looked at. There were a couple studies, a couple presentations in particular. One was PCARS, was looking at relapsed PTCL in about almost 50 patients. It's interesting that HDAC inhibitors, there's now five or six now being investigated and tested. And we know the first one that was FDA approved was varinostat with respect to cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Now there's a whole series and different investigators are looking at different targets, including not just the cutaneous T-cell, but as we see here, the peripheral T-cell lymphomas, but also in patients, for example, with other types of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, including B-cell lymphomas. It's a fascinating group of drugs. They work perhaps somewhat differently. They're not all the same. They're not created equally. Romadepsin, for example, is what they consider a pan-HDAC inhibitor with respect to its activity. Histone deacetylase inhibitors basically inhibit the taking off the acetyl groups from either with respect to chromatin at the DNA level, but also certain proteins, whereas with respect to the DNA level of the chromatin, it opens up the actual, for example, chromatin and allows maybe the reading of different proteins. We believe the translation then 
of proteins that are, for example, tumor suppressor genes, and then tumor suppressor proteins are actually being expressed, leading to anti-tumor activity. I think it's a bit of a black box, Neil, is that now several things are being proposed as mechanisms of action, but I think it's going to be several years before we actually understand this better. It should be noted that about a third of the patients responded with relapsed PTCL, and the trouble is that you've got to be able to get enough in. It increases to almost 50% if you can get two or more cycles in, but either due to progression or toxicity, sometimes patients can't tolerate the HDAC inhibitor. So dose adjustment, further studies need to look at dose and schedule, I believe, for a lot of these agents. This was given actually at 14 milligrams per meter squared as a four-hour infusion once a week, day one, eight fifteen every 28 days. Toxicities included thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, nausea, fatigue, and anorexia were the major side effects. But I think it is very exciting that, you know, for years there has been really a lull. Not too much has been discussed with respect to cutaneous T-cell, especially now also peripheral T-cell lymphomas, which, as we know, is a whole hodgepodge of different histologies. And it is really rewarding that we actually have some new agents that are right here now that we can actually utilize for these patients. To what extent, I mean, as you say, peripheral T-cell lymphoma is a hodgepodge, but to what extent is there crossover and response between cutaneous T-cell and peripheral T-cell? You know, I think that the general rule is that it is a T-cell lymphoma. However, we can't really make a direct comparison because in general, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma even though they can be resistant refractory, are somewhat still considered in a group as indolent T-cell malignancies or neoplasms, whereas peripheral T-cell lymphomas, I would say, actually contain a significantly higher number of aggressive histologies that need some additional treatment options. So I don't think we can make a direct extrapolation between those agents in CTCL, cutaneous T-cell that will work in PTCL. But at least in general, what we've seen work in CTCL at least has some activity, although I can't say that it may have the same efficacy. In general, it's still a T-cell malignancy. However, in some of the more aggressive subtypes, we're probably are looking at high-dose therapy and transplant for patients that have some of the more aggressive histologies of pre-TCL, and that romadepsin as a single agent probably would not be effective. Do you think that some of these recent steps forward, and particularly in cutaneous as well as peripheral T-cell lymphoma, is this you know like a tiny little step that doesn't really mean much to most patients, or do you think this is really clinically meaningful? I think it's definitely clinically meaningful. I think that the issue is that we haven't found the holy grail. We don't have curative therapy for these patients at this time. I think that these patients for years have suffered with really just, you know, the standard chemo approach that we've used for patients with non-Hodgkin's B-cell lymphomas we've been applying to T-cell lymphomas. I think that definitely we know that T lymphocytes are definitely different than B lymphocytes. So therefore, T cell malignancies or neoplasms have a different natural history. They have a unique presentation, as we see, and they need novel therapies. So I think that these, as I like to say, basically, you know, footsteps. I mean, we may not actually be running yet, but we're taking the steps in the right direction. They're building blocks. I think, as you mentioned before, what are we going to be adding together with this? Is there a possibility that we can be utilizing these things? A lot of these new drugs, we're looking at giving initial therapy, but then the question really comes up, should we be looking at some type of a maintenance therapy, especially in curable patients with PTCL or cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, maybe a low dose after we gain a stronghold of this disease, 
may be useful. And I don't overlook the possibility of using different agents. For example, perhaps the most sensible thing is using a prolotrexate in some of these patients and low-dose romadepsin or an HDAC inhibitor. And some of these actually are very exciting. You know, they're coming. We have oral HDAC inhibitors, so the patients actually, to maintain their quality of life and their convenience, could potentially go on a low-dose oral regimen. It could be then we'd have to work out the details, of course, with dose and schedule, but that might be able to maintain much longer the remission durations and give them good quality of life. Because unfortunately, I would say that the vast majority of these patients are all going to relapse with disease and probably retreating them with the same agent is not going to have the same exciting results. But we have a lot now to try. But again, these novel type of ideas and approaches need to be tested in the future. That's interesting. Is that combination strategy actually being looked at? I have not seen anybody, Neil, because all these agents are just really kind of hit the trials are just recently been finalized or ongoing. So you heard it first from me, Neil. I, mean, I like I think it. That might be the way to go. 